0: Welcome back, and welcome to new people. Um, if you've picked up your book, which hopefully you've already seen it, you've been to small group or studying the Book of John. Yay! Um, there were only three of us that wanted to do Leviticus, so we—I was outvoted, and <laughs> you were one, Marilyn. Okay, you could, you were one of them. Yes. Um, so we're going to move to the New Testament. Which, if we have to do New Testament, I love the Book of John. It's my favorite gospel. Um, So, maybe it is time to do a little switch to the New Testament. Um, As we look at the book of John this year and all these wonderful stories that we're pretty familiar with, um, and all of the deep theology that's incorporated into the book of John, I wanted to read a quote um, that I heard from John Piper this summer. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about the story of the Bible, it's one story. 66 books connected um, to this one story. As we talk about the stories, listen to this quote for a minute. He says, God does not exist for our enjoyment of Bible stories, but Bible stories exist for our enjoyment of God. So the point of every story that we look at this year is one person. It's not, the point is not the story, the point is a person, and that person is Christ. Um, I have the tendency to get excited about theology, and so as I look at the book of John, there's so much there. You think John is saying one thing, and then you dig a little deeper, and it's, oh, there's a lot more here. But let's not just focus on stories and theology, but let's remember this is about a person. Um, and as I've said to you before, when we come to study Scripture— We don't come to the Bible with what I call, or what I've heard called, yearbook theology. When you get your yearbook as a kid, what did you do? Flip through. There's a picture of me. That's not too good. Here's another one. You look for all the pictures of yourself first, right? Most of us. When you come to Scripture, we can't approach Scripture in that way. When we come to Scripture, we look for God first. And then we make the application to ourselves after that. Um, when you come to Scripture, you can look at it at, at a passage, and you can think of the questions, the who, what, when, where, why. You can look at it. Um, I, I would advise people to look at a passage of Scripture and think, let's comprehend the facts first, and then interpret, and then make application. I've heard that term, the CIA. You comprehend the facts first, and then you make an interpretation. And then you apply, last. So you're looking to application to yourself at the end. Um, just a few bits of um, advice before we start with this study. So actually, this is what we're going to do with the book of John. So hopefully it's not too boring this morning. It's a lot of introduction to the book. But we're going to take those questions, the who, the when, the where, the why, and um, Look at the book of John as a whole. Um, I like to call this reading the envelope. That's why I've got this picture um, up here. When you get an envelope from someone in the mail, especially if you're a kid, what do you do? Who's it to, right? You can look at the return address, who's it from? You can look at the postmark and see about where it was written and kind of when it was written. And if you read the letter, you'll see why. What was the purpose of this? So that's what we're going to do with the book of John um this morning and I'm just going to give a caveat to before I put my PowerPoint up here th- this first one especially there's gonna be a lot of scripture references come up and see me later to and I'll email them to you because you won't be able to write them all down um, as I'm talking this morning um as first century or 21st century Americans when we ask the question who wrote the book of John duh Jill it's called John But do you know that John, not even one time, mentioned his own name in the book? Not only does he not say anything about being the author, his name is not in the book. Did you know that? Hmm. So how are we going to know who wrote this book? Well, um, if we look internally, and I'm going to read you this quote first, so... One author explained it in this way. He said, The most likely explanation is that John was the beloved disciple that wrote the gospel, and that out of humility, he refrained from even mentioning his own name. Instead, he focused on the fact that he never would have been a follower of Jesus except for the amazing divine love the Savior had for him. Um, If you remember, John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. That's the only way that he refers to himself, not by name. All right, so first off, internally, who wrote? the gospel according to John. Um, First, we see that the author was an apostle and an eyewitness to the things that happened um, among Jesus's ministry. Secondly, we see in the book of John that this author was one of the 12 disciples. And then thirdly, we see that he was, in fact, in close association with Peter. And I've got scriptures that you can compare the other um, books of the gospels to, the gospel of John, and kind of see who are they talking about here. Um, Throughout much of uh, church history, Christians and church fathers have attributed this gospel to John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, and he was also called a son of thunder. Hmm. So the disciple whom Jesus loved was a son of thunder. What does that mean? I think when we get to that passage probably had a pretty, pretty bad temper, perhaps. Maybe that's the interpretation. Um, but it's interesting that he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Um, all throughout the other Gospels, it's Peter, James, and John. So this, this author was a member of Jesus' most tight inner circle. Um, he wrote not only this Gospel, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. So that's the internal evidence that we have. And comparing the gospels to each other, you can see this most likely lines up with being the disciple John. Externally, um, late 2nd century, 179 to 190 A.D., Tertullian and Irenaeus um, and some other guys were definitely attributing this gospel to the disciple John. Now look at that timeline for a minute, 179 to 190 A.D., so John died roughly 90 to 100 A.D. is when we think he died. So these guys, depending on how old they were, they could have known John, but they definitely would have known someone in between there that knew John. So it's not, the, it's not even six degrees of Kevin Bacon or six degrees of John. It's just like two, right? Um, so you have Irenaeus where we have evidence that he was a disciple of Polycarp. That should ring a bell for some people. Polycarp, we know from letters that were written, was actually a disciple of John himself. So Irenaeus, the church father and historian, definitely had simply secondhand and possibly closer than that knowledge of uh, John's writing. Secondly, throughout the manuscripts and the history we have of the church, there was no opposition to this book having been written by the disciple John. There was no one that came out and said, no, that's not him. Um, So that's pretty good evidence as well. All right, so then we look to where was it written, and then along with that we can kind of see to whom was it written. Um, We think that John definitely was outside of Palestine and Israel when he wrote this. Um, Probably in the city of Ephesus, which is Asia Minor, Turkey, modern day Turkey. We have, if you'll turn to John chapter 4, I'll show you one example of the first thing that's on the um, screen up here. In several places, John adds commentary. Maybe it's explaining geography, maybe it's translating a word, Um, and maybe it's explaining a custom. So, if you look in John chapter 4, this is the Samaritan woman, a story we're most all familiar with. We'll look down at verse 9. John says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then you notice the next statement is in parentheses For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's evidence number one. A Jew that lived inside of Palestine or Israel would not need that parenthetical statement. They would have known that Samaritans were unclean. So obviously, the person that John is writing to or the people that John is writing to were people who did not live inside of Palestine. So if we're answering the question, where was it written? We think that John was outside of Palestine or Israel. Those are, at this point, interchangeable words. Um, secondly, there's a close connection between this gospel and John's book of revelation. And if you know much about the book of revelation, there were seven churches that John wrote to. And where were they? They were all outside of Israel. They were all actually in Asia Minor, which is where Ephesus is, um, modern day Turkey. So two evidences that he was most likely outside of Israel at the time when he wrote, um, wrote this. And if you recall a little bit of history, Um, the destruction of the temple had occurred in 70 A.D., and so everyone was scattered after that. Uh, We'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. Um, As far as the specific audience, that tells us where right here. As far as the specific audience, um, just like with any book of the Bible, it's written to the church as a whole, right? It's written to us for sure, and we'll see evidences of that as well. Um, However, we do see... Um, bits and pieces of evidence that it was written to a Jewish community outside of Israel. Um, and I'll show you some examples of that. But um, people who, had, who still had frequent contact with maybe family members or friends who were still a part of the Jewish synagogue. Um, and at the time, persecution was becoming a problem for these Jewish, excuse me, Jewish Christians. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. We see things like John uses the word Christ to translate the Greek word Christos, but also the Hebrew word Meshiach, which you can kind of hear the word Messiah from that. But both of those words, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, both mean the same thing, the Messiah, the anointed one. So that gives us a little hint that John is writing to someone who needs the Greek and the Hebrew translation. OK, um, He also uses this word for Christ more often than any other gospel writer. So apparently, he's writing to people who are, perhaps already Christians, but also have some Jewish history or Jewish background um, that he needs to kind of speak to both sides of that coin, so to speak. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So, um, this term Christ would have been especially important, important to those Jewish Christians at the time. Um, the differences at the time in history between the synagogue and the church were becoming very large, and there was becoming that's more and more of a bit a large split among uh, family members, friends. They were having to part ways. Um, all right. So, who, who was this written to? Number one, <clears throat> we think that it was written to a group of Jewish Christians outside of Palestine. Secondly, we see evidences in chapters 1 and 4, um, especially, of John, that it was written to the entire church as a whole throughout the ages. Um, John translates several words in those chapters for his Gentile readers like us. We would not know that unless he had translated that. Um, All right, so when was this book written? If you have read the four Gospels, if you've ever ever read them back to back or even alongside of each other, um, you know that the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar. If you've ever noticed, the stories in the ministry that they describe that Jesus had are very similar. Um, Lots of the same stories, the same basic structure. Um, Then you come to John. What do you notice about John totally different. He kind of does his own thing. Um, Those first three are termed the synoptic gospels, and then you have the book of John. He's still considered a gospel because that's what he's, that's the story he's telling. Um, It appears because of that, that John has written his book later, after those three. Um, And the reason that we think that is because he actually describes the ministry of Jesus prior to Um, the arrest of John the Baptist, which tells us that he was giving a little more supplemental information about that ministry period for Jesus, um, something that the other three Gospels do not provide for us. Um, So we know that probably this was written as on the PowerPoint late in John's life, 85 to 90 AD. Um, We know that... um, First of all, that's because, or we think, that's because the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, we know that that occurred in 70 AD, and John has no mention or allusion at all to the destruction of the temple. So we think that a good period of time had passed when he wrote um, this gospel. Secondly... um, John appears to be writing, and, and if you keep this kind of in the back of your mind of who his audience really was, these Jewish Christians outside of Israel, as you read your homework and your studying, keep that in the back of your mind, and I think you 'll pick up on number two here. Um, he appears to be writing at a time when the split between the church and the synagogue was getting uh, was really difficult. Um, the Jewish Christians that he was writing to, he appears to be wanting to foster their faith, to give them some encouragement. Um, and when we talk about the purpose in just a minute, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but the synagogue, after the destruction of the temple, actually wrote curses into their prayers for heretics, curses upon heretics. So you can, just from that alone, you can you can see that the persecution for these Jewish Christians was um, becoming really difficult. Um, and then thirdly, if we move outside of the text, we see that The gospel was, as I said before, written after um, the other three. We have several second century church fathers that attested that it was written after, much later than the other three gospels. Um, All right, so when we look at why was it written, that's the why question. Um, Again, with any book in the New Testament that's fairly lengthy, there are complex purposes, but we're going to try to make this pretty simple. We're going to try to come up with two. Based on what John says, if you turn to John chapter 20, and I think this is on your bookmark. Did y'all get a bookmark this morning? All right. Remember, John's writing to Jewish Christians outside of Palestine and the church as well. But let's look at the purpose of why he wrote it. So John chapter 20, we'll look down at verses 30 and 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So first off, we see that there's an evangelistic tone to this book. Um, We see that John has written so that these readers would know that Jesus is the Christ, that Messiah word, the Hebrew word, as well as the Christos word, the anointed one, the promised seed, Jesus is the Christ. And then in this verse as well, secondly, we see there's an apologetic tone to why he's writing this book. Um, He wants these Jewish Christians to know that not only is he the Christ, he is divine. He is the Son of God, the incarnate God-man. He wanted to, again, encourage them in their faith, because if you think about it, that's the number one difference between these Jewish Christians and their Jewish family members and friends. What's the number one difference? They both had been waiting for this anointed one, this Messiah, right? Right? and they have been together in the synagogue, and now all of a sudden they've had to separate because of this one difference. One believed that the anointed one had already come, and one group, they were still waiting. So that's the main difference. And so John is going to, later in this first century, he's going to encourage these Christians. He is the Christ. He's also the divine son of God, the incarnate God. God mean. Um, in chapters 13 through 17, we see John encouraging believers um, as a whole. Um, he sees um, he, tends, he tends in those chapters to really stress the presence of the Holy Spirit as an encourager and a confidant and the one that's always with us. Um, he talks about Jesus is no longer walking the earth, but that we have this um, companion. Um, and so we kind of see that as an encouragement to all of us. We know Jesus is no longer walking the earth, but we've got his spirit with us. Um, And just as some personal commentary as I close, um, like I said, this is my favorite gospel. Um, I think that whether you're a new Christian, old Christian, in between the book of John, God, by his Holy Spirit, will speak to you in this book. Um, You can understand it at the most basic level, but there are also, um, there's deep theology in this book. Um, And I know as for myself as a young Christian, um, the book of John was precious and the stories we love and we can understand and we can take that with us. But as you even as, as, let's see, maybe four or five years ago, God took me through a deep theological change in my heart. And it was through the book of John that he revealed lots of deep things to me. Um, and so this book is very precious to me. And I think when you read it at the surface, you can get a lot from it. But you can also, there's, there's just always more in the book of John. What he says at one level sometimes is not really what he's saying at another level. Um, anyway, so as we, if you've been with us through the study of Genesis and the book of Exodus, or even if you weren't, let's talk about that for just a minute. Let's connect. We have this one overarching story, the story of redemption, and this one overarching person, the promised one, Christ. In the book of Genesis, as early as Genesis 3.15, if you can think back that far, we saw the first promise of the Messiah, the anointed one, Genesis 3.15. We saw in Genesis 12, a a further um, narrowing of that promise as God promised a seed to Abraham. As we went further into Genesis, it got even more narrow. We go down to his grandson, Jacob, whom he named Israel. This is the family line that that seed is going to come from. That family travels to Egypt, 70 of them. Once we get to the book of Exodus, there's millions, at least a million of them of that one line of Jacob. 400 years after the promise in Genesis 15, God rescues that family, those million or so people from slavery in Egypt, this family where that promised one's gonna come from. He kept the family safe, right? The family has now prospered and they have a million people where this promised one's gonna come from. He rescues them from slavery. He covenants with them at Mount Sinai to be their God. We see evidences through the book of Exodus of, we, we start seeing these, you read it and you think, oh, there's just got to be a better way. You see the, the pictures of the high priest and you think I, think, I think maybe there could be a better high priest. Or you look at the book of Exodus and you think, I'm just not sure that the blood of goats and lambs, that that's good enough to cover sin. We move to the book of John. And there he is. There's the one that's the perfect high priest that's always um, praying for us, interceding for us. There's the one whose blood is better than the blood of goats and lambs. Um, John's gospel, if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians, John's gospel shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So all of those things that you saw in Genesis and Exodus... Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me turn there myself. Go down to verse 20. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised seed. Um, all the promises of God find their yes in him. He is their fulfillment. He is the Christ. He is the divine son of God. And for those who believe that, there are blessings now, but in the age to come, there, there's eternal life. And that's the purpose of John's gospel, is to get that message to all of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you knowing that everything that we have is from your hand. Lord, we acknowledge that whether it is our health or our Bible that we are able to read, Lord, if it's just simply being able to understand things, Lord, for our mind to function correctly, Lord, this church, this body right here, this body of believers, these sisters in Christ, this is a gift from you. Lord, everything we have is from your hand. Use your word over this next year to point us to the Christ. Point us to the one person that every one of these stories is about, Lord. Allow us to be good stewards during the week of our time. Lord, to Um, use the opportunities that you give us. Use our power for righteousness. God, I thank you for each lady who's here. I thank you for drawing them here, and I just pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would continue your saving work in each of their hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you get up, there are some questions at your table. The book that we're using by Kathleen Nielsen, um, which is, it's wonderful. There are not a lot of application questions. And so um, Paula actually has some written up that she has shared for this coming week for you to answer it. I know I'll say, last night I said, there's just two. And then they're like, there's like an A through Z on every one of them. <laughs> so yes, there's like seven or so. But um, just answer those applications at the end, right? So at the end of the week, Um, answer those application questions for discussion for next week in your small groups. And I think we may email these out starting next week. So have a great day. Thank you.